And so a lot of young artists get frustrated when, you know, you look on television and you see uh, uh, Kahende Wiley or something like that. And you're like, oh, man, they're selling their work for, you know, $100,000 or $50,000. I need to sell my work for $50,000. And then you can't sell your work for $50,000. And then you feel like you failed. And then you give up. You know what I'm saying? You have to be tenacious. You have to persevere. And you have to pace yourself. I think that's the, the biggest thing that I think a lot of people uh, miss is the this idea of the process. They want to go from beginning to uh, across the street instantaneously and, and, you know, skip all the steps in between. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Works in Process. This podcast is a series of conversations where I speak to designers, artists, writers, and more to discuss their creative methodologies. I'm your host, designer and educator, George Garriston. In this episode, I finally catch up with a longtime friend, Dr. Fahamu Petu. Fahamu is an artist, scholar, and agitator whose work has been featured in galleries, museums, and in the backdrop of television shows. His earlier focus on making Fahamu officially the shit and the extensive series on black masculinity has propelled him to explore what truly means to be black in America. So enough for me. Let's get to our conversation. Hey, Fahamu. How you doing? Hey, what's up, bro? Hey, Good man. Good your voice, man. I know. It's been a while. Been a while. I'm out <laughs> here in New York, right? You in Atlanta. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, a little, a little distance, a little time, but you know, it's always love when, when we connect. Yeah, no, definitely. So glad to get you on the podcast. It's been like a year since I've been trying to get you on this. <laughs> and a lot has happened in a year. And we're gonna a get lot to, has happened in a year. Yeah. And we're, and we're going to get to all that. So, um, but I wanted to start off, just get us a little acclimated, you know, you know, comfortable in this conversation. This is my second interview doing via, you know, distance. So um, it's going to be fun. All right, let's do it. Let's yeah, get it so I, I, I start my conversations with this thing that I call icebreakers. It's just okay. a bunch of, you know, um, this or that questions that kind of just, you know, get you loose. Okay. Cool? Um, toast or a bagel? Ah, uh, bagel. There you go. New York. I know. <laughs> um, coffee or tea? Tea. Nas or Jay-Z? Ooh. Uh, Ooh, is that a neither? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so pick, pick one then. Uh, I have to pick one? No, pick pick somebody else then. Uh, oh, Kanye. Okay. Oh, there you go. We have a conversation about that too. <laughs> um, Renaissance art or modern art? Modern, for sure. Okay. Um, digital or paper? Paper. New York or Atlanta? ATL, shouty. <laughs> that was a gimme. <laughs> um, R&B or hip hop? Uh, R&B. Cool. Sweet. How did I know you were going to say Kanye? <laughs> I know. Because I, I like to start trouble. I know. If, if we follow you on Instagram, we can kind of see how, where that comes yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. So now I have a bunch of uh, so now I have a bunch of word association stuff, and I really just want you to say the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear these words. Cool. All right, for sure. Closing my eyes. Let's go. <laughs> Creativity. Paint. Design. Computer. Art. Museum. Business. Money. Failure. Ooh. Nothing. Nice. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. Clients. Friends. 
Mistakes. Lessons. Tools. Paintbrush. Skills. Dance floor. <laughs> Somebody else, I had two people say Napoleon Dynamite after that question, <laughs> and then you had dance floor. It kind of all works in the same level. <laughs> uh, <laughs> opportunity. Work. Future. Student. Risk. Growth. And of course, last but not least, process. Results. All right. All right. There we go. All right. Were your eyes totally closed the whole time? Say that again? Were your eyes totally closed the whole time? No, nah, no. Nah, I opened them. Uh, I think one of the questions stumped me a little bit. I had to open my eyes to <laughs> figure out what was going on. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's see. So there's a lot of people who know you because if anybody follows Fahamu Peku, you can follow his Instagram and you can see all the work that he's done over the last, what are you going to say, 20 years? Uh, yeah, just about, man. Right, 20 years? 20 years, yeah. Right, but there's going to be a lot of people who are just turning into me for the first time and you know don't know that we actually go back 20 years and that's why yep. we haven't seen each other in so long because <laughs> you moved back after we um, you know, we worked together at a, at a company in New York designing, designing what, party flyers? Party flyers, restaurants, <laughs> clubs. That, that was the craziest hip-hop spot. collateral. Yeah. But obviously I know you, right? But, uh, but most of the people probably don't know you. And they don't know me either, but I'm the one hosting. So uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that you've been going through. And I want you to kind of give your own what I call origin story. All right. For sure. Well, let me see. Um, uh, Fahamu uh, has always been somebody with a pencil in his hand drawing ever since he was a little boy. Um, and, uh, you know, after graduating from the Atlanta College of Art in 97, uh, I got a degree in painting. I uh, needed to get a job and I, you know, lied on an application and said I knew how to do graphic design, but I had never taken a graphic design class in my life. Um, and I ended up getting the job and it sucked. It was one of the worst uh, work experiences that I ever had. It was like this place doing pre-production for like vanity uh, license plates and like the stickers that you get for like, you know, colleges and universities and stuff like that, that you put on like bumper stickers and things like that. Okay. Um, and I mean, when I tell you, bro, it was like super old school. Like we used to have to use Ruby lists. Um, <laughs> and if anybody knows anything about graphic design, uh, anybody who's still using Ruby lift and not a computer and, you know, 1999, 2000 was really, really doing some old school stuff. So, um, that was my introduction to graphic design, but like any, uh, young artists uh, at that time, you know, the the, the dream, the, the goal was to get to New York um, and to be, you know, artists in New York. So uh, I eventually, you know, saved up enough money and moved uh, back to New York uh, with my family. And on the first day that I got there, my, my older brother, who also uh, lives in New York, was like, yo, you know, there's this place where I get some stickers and flyers and stuff done. You know, maybe you can go there and get a job. And so, you know, the next day I went. And that was uh, Barone. Um, I went in and, you know, they were, you know, I told them that I did graphic design. I was asking if they were looking to hire anybody. Um, they sat me down, gave me a flyer. I remember it was for uh, uh, the Cheetah Club or something like that. <laughs> of course um, it was. <laughs> so they gave me like this, you know, kind of trial, you know, to see what I can do. And, um, you know, I banged out the flyer in like 10 minutes and they were like, yeah, you're, you're hired. And um, I remember, uh, uh, UG, you were like, you know, one of my first friends in New York outside of my family. 
Um, you know, we were around the same age. We were both, you know, the same age. And I think you have recently just started there as well. Yeah, um, I was finishing school at FIT. Yeah, yeah. So we just kind of, re- you know, hit it off uh, pretty quickly. Um, but I stayed there for about a year um, and then decided, you know, I really wanted to uh, be in Atlanta because it was just some really dope things happening in Atlanta and I wanted to be a part of it. Uh, and I knew that there wasn't a lot of people uh, doing anything on the on the level uh, that I was doing in terms of graphic design. Uh, and so I was like, you know, why don't I just go to Atlanta and, you know, start my own design company? Um, and, you know, another thing that uh, really kind of sparked that for me was uh, one day going into uh, Sandy's office and, uh, you know, she was just like, like any other day, she was just in there chain smoking cigarettes uh, with, with, you know, <laughs> stacks and stacks of paper all around her desk. And I think it was a, on a, a payday. I think it was a payday or something like that. Um, and, you know, she got ready to pay me and she, you know, reached into a drawer and pulled out this huge stack of cash because um, she always paid me cash, you know. Uh, and then I was I started thinking to myself as I left, I was like this, like six designers in here there's everybody in the print shop yo if, if she's paying me this what is she making you know all right I, I need to be doing that you know what i'm saying so that's when i was like i'm gonna start my own you know design uh company and i you know talked to one of my homeboys and um you know i moved back to atlanta uh and we started you know a company called diamond lounge but mind you this entire time really all i wanted to do was paint you know what i mean i wanted to you know be an artist shows and galleries and stuff like that and um you know, I, I, I didn't really know how to get on. I didn't really know the process for getting started in the art world. So I just did everything that I did know how to do, which was, you know, make my work and send stuff to, to galleries and things. And, you know, I kept waiting for somebody to hit me back and be like, yeah, we want to give you a show. Uh, nobody ever called back, you know, or, or sent me, you know, any letters back, you know, to that um, to that end. And so ultimately uh, I created a, a marketing campaign called Fahamu Pek Who's the Shit um, to like start branding myself and to get myself out there to get my name known uh, so that I could get seen or noticed by the art galleries. And that's really kind of where everything started. So, I mean, um, there was a bigger reason behind that. I mean, oh, I know, yeah, you, I know sure. you said it's a marketing campaign, right? And of course, when somebody calls themselves, you know, the shit, it's it's really, you know, claiming that, well, there's nothing else beyond me, right? But right, what was right. the main purpose of that? You know, actually, man, to, to be quite honest with you, um, I, I really give a lot of credit to that time at, at Barone with, with, with all of that. You know, um, as you know, a lot of the clients that would come in there were, uh, you know, club promoters and a lot of hip hop artists, you know, would come through and get, you know, pieces done. Um, and so I got to see a different side of um, these personalities, these, you know, celebrities and stuff like that. And I began to think at that time, as I'm designing these, you know, posters and promotional items, you know, to boost their work, I started thinking like, like what, would, what would happen if somebody promoted a visual artist the same way we do a hip hop artist? You know, would it have the same impact? Would people respond the same way? You know, uh, w- you know, would it would it serve the same to the same end? Um, and I just kind of filed that away in the back of my head. You know, that that spark was was certainly started at Barone. Uh, but when I was back in Atlanta and, you know, I started again, like I said, I started my own design company. And uh, one of our first uh, big clients was um, a woman named Shirley Franklin, who became the first black woman mayor of the city of Atlanta. And uh, when we were 
working on her materials, you know, we would always have to put this line that said, paid for by the committee to make Shirley Franklin mayor of Atlanta. And her team was so adamant about that line and everything. Like, they would be like, no, put that on there first because we can't forget that. We have to have that on, a, you know. And it was like they were neurotic about it. And I thought it was funny, you know. And I was like, man, I, I need a crew of people to rock as hard for me as the committee to make Shirley Franklin mayor of Atlanta. I was like, I need a committee, you know. So I was like, oh, I'm going to make up a committee, the committee to make Fahamu Peku officially the shit. Um, and that's how it all started. It was really kind of a joke. Like, I, I didn't do it with the thought that I was actually doing a branding campaign, per se. I just wanted to see what would happen. Like, what would happen if I began to promote and market myself as an artist the same way I was doing for, you know, my political clients or my hip-hop clients? Um and, you know, again, it was like an experiment, but it quickly snowballed um, and I began to see, you know, the value in it. So in the beginning, there was actually really no rhyme or reason to it. In fact, the, I, I kind of patterned the image, you know, of myself, which was this graphic illustration of me with no shirt on and stuff like that. It was really kind of, you know, uh, making a mockery of like the 50 cent uh, marketing campaign because it was so ubiquitous. Like, okay, got it. Everywhere you turn, you would see like 50 Cent with that bulletproof vest on. And you know what I mean? Like it was everywhere, you know, and I was like, you know, I need to do something like that. Um, and so I, you know, just kind of started putting, you know, stickers and wheat pasting posters all around the city of Atlanta of, you know, this graphic illustration of me with no shirt on, uh, looking really hard and tough. And it said, Fahamu Peko is a shit. And, you know, within a couple of days, like, you know, people were coming up to me on the street like, hey, are, are you that shit guy? Like, wh what is that about? Like, who, who are you? What do you do? You know, or people who knew me were like, yo, are you in some kind of trouble? I saw something on the street that said you was a shit or you was shit or like, what's what's happening? You know, and it was like I, I, I saw that it had like an impact, like, you know, even if people didn't fully understand, they were responding to it. Right. And that's, um, and that's I think, where I, you know, saw it. You don't do things frivolously and just do things for no reason. And. Because I'm seeing it in New York, I know it's already been hot in Atlanta for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was actually kind of crazy the way it took off. Um, uh, you know, and it, it surprised me because again, for me, it was just a joke. I just I just wanted to see what would happen. Um, but you know, after the success of the the posters and stickers and stuff like that, I you know got like some of those like iron on transfers, you know. Right. Oh, <laughs> and that, made a, yeah, a, old school t-shirt way, right? Right, right. And made a couple of t-shirts and stuff like that. And, you know, my friends would be like, let me wear one. Let me get one, you know? And so I would give, you know, shirts to like friends and they would wear them out. And then people would be like, where'd you get that from? I want one of those, you know? And like you said, uh, this was the era of like Black Planet and MySpace and stuff like that. Uh, I began to like make these like mock uh, uh, profiles, these fake profiles uh, for people who would like sing the praises of Fahamu Pickles and shit, you know? Um, and, you know, so I was kind of like doing like a social media marketing campaign before there was a such thing, you know, right. uh, you know, just like blasting all over people's MySpace page or Black Planet page, like Fahamu Pickles the shit or like taking like corny pictures of, uh, people from their Black, uh, MySpace page and putting it next to a picture of me and like not the shit. And then Fahamu Pickles the shit, you know, uh, I and do just remember that. these things, yeah, like all over the place. And it was really, again, it was an experiment. It had nothing to do with my artwork. I mean, there wasn't even a call to action, you know? Uh, you know, there was no website to go to. There was no, you know, you can find out more information here. It was just literally, Fahamu Pickles the shit, 
paid for by the committee to make Vamu Peku officially the shit. That was it. You just said you created a marketing campaign to help boost you, right? And But it had mm-hmm. no artwork, right? It had the original iconography of you. Yeah. And I mean, they, like, there, there were paintings. Like, I was painting, but the paintings in the marketing campaign didn't necessarily go hand in hand. Um, it was uh, um, maybe after about two years of doing that, because this was like around 2001, 2002, when I first started with the campaign. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I didn't study graphic design. Uh, I taught myself how to do graphic design by looking at magazines. Um, so I would like go to bookstores and buy all the like hip magazines and stuff and then go back, you know, to my crib and, um, you know, look, find like cool ads or layouts and stuff like that and try to recreate them, you know, That's so I could learn the, the techniques and stuff like that. And um, so I had this really healthy uh, collection of magazines and this really collect healthy obsession with magazines. And so I would always go to bookstores and, you know, just grab a stack and, you know, uh, check out and, you know, keep it moving. But uh, one day as I was in the bookstore, one of the subscription cards, you know, fell out of the magazines that I was carrying. And usually I wouldn't have paid it any attention, but, you know, this was like a card and it had like a back issue on one side and the the next issue that was coming on the other side. Um, And it was like, you know, fill it in and, you know, pay X amount of dollars and you can get a subscription and blah, blah, blah. And I was like thinking to myself, like, you know, when you see somebody on the cover of a magazine, you know, automatically assume they must be somebody important. They're on the cover of a magazine. I should be on the cover of a magazine. So I went back to the crib and I made up a magazine called Contemporaneo, which was supposed to be this like contemporary art uh, magazine of, uh, of the uh, Latin America. Um, and I put myself on the cover and I, you know, printed up a couple hundred of these like cards that said, if you fill out this um, subscription card and mail it back in, you'll get a free issue of Contemporaneo featuring Fahamu Peku. And then I went back to the bookstore and I went all along the, um, uh, the newsstand and put the cards that are printed up in every magazine, you know, all, <laughs> all along the newsstand. And again, just wanted to see what would happen if people would see this and think it was real and like fill it out and mail it back, you know. And they came back by the dozens, by the hundreds, you know, of uh, people, you know, finding the cards and like mailing them in, requesting a copy of this magazine. Um, anyway, one day I was at the mailbox and there was a stack of them in there and I, you know, pulled it out and I'm looking at the card and looking at this image of this magazine that I mocked up and I'm like, yo, this is kind of dope. I should paint this. Um, and so I painted it and then it was like, you know, the light bulb went off like, ah, you know, this is it. This is what I was, you know, going for. Um, and so from that point on, I actually, you know, uh, endeavored to paint myself on the cover of every art magazine. Uh, you know, with the with the, with all the swag and bravado of this character that I, you know, created and, and really kind of performed in public spaces as for a couple of years um, as a way of like critiquing the art world, as a way of, you know, critiquing uh, popular culture and celebrity culture, um, you know, as a way of making a parody of, you know, our uh, obsession with media and stuff like that. And so, you know, it became this, the, the magazine uh, allowed me this really like rich format to you know, explore all of these like nuanced questions around identity and performance and celebrity and art, you know? No, definitely. When you started doing that, I think I definitely saw the first issue because you started posting it. But then I'm talking about magazines that I don't even 
know exist. Right. right? <laughs> and and then they're not that they're fake magazines at all. They're just, you know, the fact that you started putting yourself on that and added to that that mystique of creating this this persona. Mm-hmm. And um, there was moments where I was like, what is going on? What, you know, what, but in the, in the understanding that there's a, there's gotta be a deeper meaning for this. Right. And like, you're telling us you're doing these things and seeing if people just bite and if they bite, you know, well, I got to keep it going. So what's the next level. Right. So you make a postcard or something, but then you're like, shit, I gotta maybe actually paint it. Cool. Right. And then you're like, this is okay. This is something. And now when I do this, I got to start keeping up with it though right you can't let this slide right right um, and that's the one one of the like kind of side effects of going around telling people that you're the shit you, you kind of have to be at that point you know what i mean because people will check you on that you know yeah you got to uh, put it up or shut up right like yeah exactly and you know and the thing about it too was like uh you know there were all of these you know really like complicated questions and, and challenges that i i was experiencing as a young black artist. And we're talking again, the early 2000s. Now it's kind of like the hip thing for galleries to have a, you know, a black artist, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. Um, for, you know, black artists to be in a national conversation or in the national spotlight. In the early 2000s, you probably couldn't name five black artists, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the publications, the institutions, the, um, you know, the galleries, like, they, they weren't really engaging with, with black artists in any significant way. And so for me, this was a way of challenging the system, you know, of bucking against the system because it was like, rather than wait on, you know, somebody to come along and validate me and say, hey, you know, all right, we, we, we like what you're doing, come on. I was like, you know, fuck, excuse my language, fuck that. Like, I'm gonna tell you who I am and then you're gonna get on, you know what I mean? So right. it was kind of, you know, it was like, it started out as, you know, this experiment, you know, what would happen if, you know, and the question was always like, what, what would happen if I do this? You know, what would happen if I do this? And I really, you know, began it as an experiment, but it ultimately began to take on a life of its own uh, and create some really like uh, um, complicated and critical observations about, you know, the art community, the art world, and even, you know, uh, my space as a black person within that. Right, right. So, I mean, now you're challenging the norms of, um, instead of people putting you on the cover, you're putting yourself on the cover. You're letting people know that I am this important, or I feel this is that I'm this important to be part of the conversation that you know African American artists, Black artists are not being part of in the early 2000s, right? You're you're mm-hmm. taking control of that instead of letting somebody else dictate to you, like you just mentioned, right? You know, thinking back, obviously, you could say that there's conscious decisions, there's this, or it just kind of all happened, you know, kind of as a as a the light bulb moment. But after a while, you know, are you picking certain magazines to, to, to really poke at somebody? Are you picking more local versus European magazines to really go, you know what, I, I'm, I'm trying to make this point versus this point. And, and how, do you, how do you decide that? Yeah, uh, early on, it was just like, go to, the, go to the bookstore, pick up any art magazines I could find, especially ones that I'd never heard of before. Uh, and, um, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, because there's so many magazines. I mean, like magazines are like fingerprints, you know. Um, and you know, again, we there's been a shift, you know, in the you know um, in the in public discourse around like media. Uh, you know, everything's digital now. But back then, you know, like I said, everything like every little nuance, every you know slight distinction, you know, there will be a different magazine for it. Um, and so 
as a result, I began to collect magazines that had really interesting titles and really interesting mastheads that, you know, became conversant with, um, with ideas that I was, you know, addressing or expressing in the paintings. And so the mastheads not only served to, you know, uh, identify this piece as a reference to a magazine, but it also lent itself to the dialogue. Um, so it would be, you know, uh, these sort of like uh, contradicting ideas, you know, the magazine might be something like, um, let me think of a good example, uh, Flaunt magazine, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then, you know, but what I would be doing in the, uh, in the piece would be, you know, something that, you know, had to do with like flaunting. Like, for example, I think on the Flaunt magazine cover, I actually did a reference to um, Kanye West. Uh, he had this line called, uh, he had this line on a song where he says, uh, damn, Kanye, it'd be stupid to diss you. Even your superficial raps are super official, you know? And I thought that was a dope line. And so I, I ended up naming the piece Super Official, um, but it was on the cover of Flaunt magazine. Like, I'm going to flex and, you know, show myself off. You know what I mean? So it was like, you know, there's these ways of like building off of what the, building off of the magazine's title, um, you know, to make it be a part of the conversation uh, you know, that I'm having, you know, or, or the critical engagement that I'm, I'm trying to, you know, express. Right. So it's not just by happenstance. You're actually creating this dialogue to say, well, you're telling me this and I'm going to respond with this. Right. Did you have kind of some kind of system? Is it like having a continuous conversation that after flaunt is, you know, something else or just whatever the, the magazine you kind of had in the stack? Yeah, it was a very, it became a very organic process once I actually uh, began to create the painting part of it, right? So, you know, there was a, there, there's the, the process um, was really interesting and, and, and it continues to say, I use this very similar process in my work, but I would, uh, you know, have a, a photographer, you know, a, a hire a photographer to shoot, you know, just some photos of me, you know, again, like trying to capture like the the essence of this character with this like swag and bravado, um, treating everything as I would, um, you know, if I was art directing an uh, album cover for, you know, one of my hip hop clients, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Um, let's get some dope photos. We need a stylist here. We need, you know, this, that, and the third, you know, and I set all of these things up and, sh you know, have a photo shoot. Uh, and then I would go back, uh, edit the photos to figure out which one, you know, works best as a painting. Um, and then, you know, do a layout of these images on magazine covers. You know, and like I said, I have this, you know, chest, like to this day, like that's filled with all kinds of different magazines that I've collected over the years. Um, and so I just kind of go through and pick, you know, uh, a cover that I think looks best with that particular image. But once I actually began painting, you know, things would, would shift again. You know, I would uh, you know, be engaging with, you know, something that I might be listening to. So like, for example, with the Kanye West, uh, joint, I was listening very heavily to late registration when I was working on those paintings. And so, you know, certain parts of songs, certain ideas or themes that, uh, came up in the songs that I was listening to began to make their way into the paintings that I was working on. Um, simultaneously I had, you know, uh, friends, uh, who are fellow artists um, as well. Uh, one in particular, uh, Tequase Dyson, who had recently just graduated from like the Yale MFA program 
you know, uh, she was like, you know, what you're doing is really smart. You know, you should be looking at this artist. You should be looking at this artist who's saying this, who's doing this. Um, you should be reading this book. You should be reading this theorist. You should be reading this philosopher, you know. So she's like giving me all of this, you know, uh, literature and stuff to read. That's also now um, impacting, you know, my thought process. Uh, and so there's all of these different, you know, um, uh, you know, kinds of like influences and, and, and uh, inspiration and stuff that that's all being like funneled into me at the same time. And so even as much as I, you know, prep work as I did in terms of like laying out the covers and doing the photo shoots and stuff like that, nothing ever came out exactly the way that I went into it. You know, it was a very organic process that continued to evolve until the last brushstroke. Well, that, that's very interesting because I was hearing, you know, you talk about all these extra influences, right? In the beginning, you know, a lot of us are just influenced by what we're listening to, right? And just taking the words and, and we know the lyrics and we know the beat and it kind of also lets us, lets us zone out when we do some creative projects and allowing that to then say, well, that's going to inform this conversation I'm having with a magazine. But then mm -hmm. you have friends telling you, okay, here's some theories and some writers and some other things that you need to start looking at so you understand bigger, deeper meanings of why the stuff you're doing. It's almost like giving your your paintings definition, you didn't even realize it yet, right? And now, exactly. right, and, and then you're looking at all this stuff, and I think one of the biggest things you just mentioned too was, you know, you do all this prep work, right? Where, you know, it's like basically designing a magazine and doing a photo shoot and doing all this editing and doing everything like you would do a, a, a magazine cover monthly, but then allowing it to just go where it goes and not be so stuck on right. it wasn't the way I envisioned it, but it actually turned out better or worse, but I was okay with it, you know? Yeah, like like really being open to the process, you know, and allowing the process to take you someplace that you didn't imagine or that you couldn't have even conceived of. You know, it was it was a uh, always like um, a learning experience for me, you know, for as much as I was, you know, being referred to various like thinkers and things like that, you know, it was also the process of, making, you know, all of these paintings and make in, in very large paintings at that, you know, which also became, you know, a part of a growing process for me. So, okay, so you just mentioned, right? So these are magazine covers, which in reality, let's say, theor theoretically, when you're looking at a magazine, it's probably somewhere eight and a half by 11, you know, mm -hmm. nine, even the bigger ones would be, you know, 11 by, by 13, maybe. How big are your mm -hmm. paintings? Well, I, I created a rubric, um, uh, around the time of making like the third or fourth painting. And, and actually, after being invited to have my first uh, solo show uh, based on these magazine paintings, um, and the gallerist uh, connected me with a guy who could build the frames for me to stretch my canvases, which meant I could make my canvases custom size. I didn't have to just go to the art store and pick up whatever they had on the, you know, in the racks. I can make them whatever size I wanted them to be. So I created this rubric that was basically like every uh, 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 actual magazine uh, was six and a half times. The, the painting was six and a half times the actual size of the magazine. So like if a magazine is like eight by 10, you know, the painting is 48 by 60, you know. So um, it, was, it was always si um, six times the size, regardless of what right. the size of the, the exactly. actual magazine. Yeah. Ah. And so, you know, it kept them also proportionate, you know, um, to the to the actual magazine. And when you display them, you know what I mean? It, it could, you know, uh, look like a newsstand, like a giant newsstand. Right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, six. Why six? Uh, I'm not quite sure why it was six, but, you know, it, it, it just worked out that way. 
Yeah. Cool. So let's see. I mean, I'm you know looking at your style and looking at the way you you present. Right. We're learning how your influence, learning how that music and and theory and literature are starting to influence what you're doing and the way you're presenting it. You have a certain style, and you're and you're all of them tend to have this style and and. We're looking at it, um, and it has a very Basquiat feel. It has this drips. It has these things that you know, and some of it also are unfinished, right? They're not. A, they're not completely done. Everything is not always filled in, which adds to the mystique of you know, just that it's it's real. It's not just a magazine. Um, how conscious was that? Yeah, there's certainly uh, all conscious decisions, and a part of it, you know, has to do with what I was describing earlier with. Um, you know, the work being a sort of like critical observation on, you know, popular culture and celebrity culture and um, our obsession, um, you know, around those those uh, specific uh, areas. And what I wanted to do as, as much as I wanted to reference the magazines as a kind of uh, point of departure, uh, I also wanted to, you know, be able to like critically engage and get the audience to critically engage with the ideas that are more or less like preconceived notions, you know? So we, you know, at one point, um, you know, the, uh, like leaving the, the canvases unfinished and, you know, you, you can see the various layers that it takes to like build up to the, you know, to the, the, the finished image was really about sort of undoing our, um, uh, reliance on like media images, you know, so everything in the media is always polished. You know, when we see celebrities on the red carpet, you know, we don't know, or we're, we're not really aware of the hours that it took to get them to look, you know, like that. You, we don't see the pens and the tape that's holding the outfits together. You know what I mean? It's like, but, but we see these people and we think, oh man, I'm nothing because I don't look like that person. But what you don't really know is that person is like, kind of like pieced and, uh, taped and stapled together in ways that that you can't necessarily see. But with the paintings, I wanted to kind of reveal, you know, those aspects of, you know, again, this, this notion of celebrity, that it's not all that it's cracked up to be on the surface. And so you see these different levels, layers to work. The text, again, um, you know, that that's written on there. There's the masthead, of course, but then there's another, like, meta dialogue that's happening with the um, the text that's scrawled on it. And, you know, this all was really a part of what I like to call like my visual rope-a-dope, um, which was a reference to Muhammad Ali, you know, who's, uh, who, who was the famous for his uh, style that he called rope-a-dope, um, where he would lure his opponents, you know, into a false sense of security by like, you know, uh, allowing them to punch, punch and beat up on him for, you know, five, six, seven rounds. And uh, by the time, you know, they get to the eighth round, they're tired and winded and, you know, he springs to life and, you know, lays them flat on the canvas, you know. So it's like the visual rope adult works in a similar way. There's all these these signs that point to, you know, things that make you feel familiar, that you feel comfortable with. But then uh, once you get a little closer to the work, once you begin to unpack all of the different layers and levels and texts, the titles, all of these different things, you realize that it's something completely opposite of what you thought it was it's, you know and, it, and these are the um excuse me the entry points um into a deeper you know more critical dialogue um and this is really ultimately what the work uh was intended to do was to spark dialogue and to get people to think 
uh, in ways that they don't typically think about, you know, pop culture and celebrity uh, and especially about black masculinity. Right. And and going into that, where where I think that you start to delve a lot more into um, transitioning not into solely magazine covers anymore. And, right. you know, you're actually just doing the, these portraits of, of, like you just mentioned, black masculinity. And um, what's the what's the how important was the transition into, you know, non-magazine cover driven things, but also as a reference to being a black male and what that masculinity means? Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, you know, around 2008 is when, uh, you know, I began to kind of uh, pull back a little bit from the magazine covers. I mean, it was fun, but I also didn't want to get locked into, you know, um, a particular idea or feel a need to use a particular idea as if it was a crutch. Um, at the same time in uh, 2008, my son was born. Uh, and, um, you know, this was a really like, uh, life altering event for me because, you know, now I'm, you know, tasked with the challenge of raising a black man. So it's not just, you know, being a black man, but now I got to raise one, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't have my father growing up or really very many male, uh, influences around me. And so I kind of felt at a loss, like, what am I going to do? Like, how do I prepare him, you know, for the world? Cause a lot of the things that I, you know, ultimately learned about, uh, my own manhood and masculinity and stuff like that, you know, really came from very tough lessons and trials and errors and i didn't want you know my son to have to go through those same kinds of things um anyway long story short uh i began to you know really kind of like hone my focus in from so many different conversations you know like i said those conversations around celebrity and around hip-hop and around the art world and you know uh uh racial disparities in the art world and you know like all these like onion layered you know, conversations that I was having in the paintings and really just strip it down and make it a conversation about black masculinity as a way of both exploring and uh, determining how I might be able to engage uh, these conversations as I raise my own son. And so in a lot of ways, um, you know, the, the paintings after 2008 really began, um, you know, uh, to expose my own personal evolution, you know, around what it means to be a black man, especially as I'm, you know, again, trying to, you know, raise a black male in a world that is automatically going to see his body and see his uh, presence as a, a, as a potential problem. Um, and so I'm going in and really honing in on stereotypes and misrepresentations of black masculinity, uh, putting them on, you know, dressing the character in these, you know, uh, stereotypes as a means of unpacking them and exploring them and really trying to get to the core humanity of black masculinity, which is something that is grossly underrepresented or misrepresented. Right, right. I mean, you know, there, there's so much that has happened since the beginning of 2008, you know, um, think about, like you just mentioned your son, but think about, you know, um, our first African-American president being elected exactly. and then yeah. all of that. But then look at how that's being unpacked currently. Right. And how right, right. these conversations are, you know, even 10 years later are something that we're dealing with. And it's even more heightened now because of, mm -hmm. of that. And so looking at that and that point of your life of now that you're not even focusing it on your internal, you're focusing on what's going to be for somebody else. I think that's really interesting. And um, I didn't even think about that. Like, yeah, at that part of your life, something drastically you know, happened. So now this big, 
shift family life, but then also career wise, right? So now you're right. talking about this, and if we, I mean, I continue, I continue to look at your gallery online and see how the stuff transitions and. Some of it transitions from not only painting, but now it's, let's say, heavily sketch and pencil work. And with these ideas of, you know, it looks like some spray paint, some paint splatter, some, you know, basically mixed media that's now telling a different story than rather than just only the original kind of just painting, painting. Um, I want to know how, how all of this ties up because, in, you know, after this and you start doing... Um, a lot more of this black masculinity, I start to see um, like one of your pieces is called Do or Die and it has this very, you know, religious aspect, but not religion that we're kind of used to in America. It's a totally different, seems African-based, seems Caribbean-based and um, where, you know, is that also part of this idea of, of how do I teach, you know, my son? Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to jump back just a, a little bit to talk about the um, the different mediums and stuff uh, that's being used as a way of segueing into, you know, some of the, the uh, new influences and stuff in the work. Um, uh, so, yeah, around, you know, 2010, I think it was, um, you know, uh, uh, one of my, my, my mentor actually made a comment to me about... Uh, doing my doing more drawings you know uh you know he was basically saying like you know your your work is getting to a place now where uh you know uh, a lot of people may not be able to afford you know one of these like six seven foot canvases or even have the space for it have you considered doing smaller works maybe drawings you know and, and you know and i've always drawn but i never really especially with those earlier works thought about drawing as a uh, as a finished, you know, piece, you know, uh, it was always a part of the process, but not necessarily like the end result. Um, and I, I found that to be a, a interesting challenge and I began to explore drawing. Uh, and I, I'll share this quick story. Uh, one day I was working on these drawings in a series called gravity. And in the series, a series of, you know, my figures wearing these, uh, like sagging pants with like eight, layers of boxers you know um and i was playing around with these drawings and w when i draw unlike when i paint i'm literally on the floor like hovering over the paper and i you know draw um and uh in the beginning i was doing the drawings and then using like a uh um a tinted water like i mix some paint in a lot of water and then use that to kind of like paint on like tone and stuff into the drawing uh, but this one particular day I'm working on these drawings and the paper that I used this was not one that really works well with a wet medium. And so it started to bubble up and, you know, crinkle and stuff like that as soon as I touched it with water. And I was like, ah, oh, man, I ruined this drawing. Uh, and I stood up, you know, frustrated to go like, uh, you know, walk away or clean my brush or something like that. And I accidentally kicked the cup of water over that was, you know, tinted with the, with the paint. And it spilled across the drawing and it made this like beautiful like pattern, you know, uh, like this beautiful movement across the drawing. And I was like, oh, that's kind of dope, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so after that, whenever I would finish the drawing, rather than, you know, use a brush to apply the media, uh, I would like, you know, mix up, you know, some water and, and paint, you know, mix it up and then like pin the drawing to the wall and then just throw the water on it and let the splatters and stuff, you know, 
do whatever it was going to do. And it, you know, came to sort of like abstract, like it gave it a lot of movement and energy. And I just really loved it. It, it still felt very painterly to me, even though they're worked on paper. Um, but doing that also allowed me to think through, you know, some of my concepts in different ways, you know, some things tend to work better as a drawing, you know, some things tend to work better as a painting. Some concepts tend to work better as a video. Some concepts tend to work better as an audio recording. And so at that point, I began to think differently about not just um, uh, the concept, but the treatment of the concept um, and allow the concept to dictate the medium rather than the other way around. Right. I mean, looking at some of them, right? And now you're telling me about the process of how this this splatter technique came, you know, came to be. But if that's the last thing you do, right, you, you, you know, after you finish the drawing, you know, you then pin it back up to allow this paint to happen. Isn't that scary that you're going to like yeah. mess up? Because your- you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there have been some drawings that I really liked and, you know, uh, try, you know, applied that technique and, you know, ended up messing things up. But there, again, there's always this like, um, uh, aspect of, of discovery and um, spontaneity, uh, you know, that happens, you know, similar to the early paintings that I talked about before. I would do all of this work, prep work, and then get into it, and then it take on a life of its own. Um, and so there's still that aspect, there's still that element when I do it, do that with these drawings. You know, I finish this drawing, it's, you know, super tight, everything's where I want it to be, but then I got to, you know, take a, you know, take a step back away from it, not be so attached to it you know, add this next phase to it and then let the drawing take a life of its own. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's never predictable. So, you know, uh, I use a water-soluble graphite, um, which will also uh, begin to kind of melt and deteriorate once it's hit with any kind of a wet medium. And so, you know, my lines, you know, will begin to disappear in, in different areas or the, the graphite will mix with the pigment and start to create a whole different uh, color or texture, you know what I mean? And, uh, it really becomes a very freeing experience, uh, and allows me to see something different in the work other than what I maybe initially intended. That's scary to me. And I, I found it very interesting that you will go and do all that work and then potentially mess it up. You know, but mess it up for the sake that you know that there's something bigger going to happen when you do that. Right. I was just going to say there's this, uh, um, this movie called uh, Pariah that I saw. I can't remember what year it came out, maybe like 2011 or something like that. Um, but there's this really great part at the end of the movie where the young woman who uh, comes out to her family as being homosexual um, is kind of ostracized by her family. But uh, she's at the end of the movie, she's like on a bus, you know, going off to start a new life you know, uh, on her own and she's reciting this poem. Uh, and in the poem, she describes uh, herself as uh, coming undone, as like shattering and breaking, right? But in that breaking, she's also becoming free, you know? She's expanding, you know, who she is and who she can become. Uh, she's no longer confined, you know, uh, to the form or to the shape that's been given to her. In breaking, she becomes something else. Um, and you know, I, 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 I often reference that or often think about that, uh, especially when I do something, you know, like I described with those, with the drawings, there's a sort of breaking that happens there that frees the drawing up to become what it will be, not what I try to make it be. Right. Uh, and there's a, there's a really liberating, um, 
quality to that. Right. I mean, you know, like in nature where things, you know, metamorphosize, like you're letting the transition just happen. This is yeah. basically what it was supposed to be anyway. Right. You know, um, which is a really, really interesting concept. And for a lot of people who like to have, you know, creative control, this is something that I can I can foresee being really, really difficult, knowing that you're going to lose some possibly really good work along the way. But to understand that there's a deeper meaning that needs to happen for this to actually be a piece of work. So, you know, leading up to, to this um, this interview, I, I was listening to a couple of podcasts, um, I think a month ago. You were on Maurice Cherry's Revision Path. Yes. And I was getting a lot of insight, you know, from there because, once again, we haven't spoken in so in, in so long, but it was also interesting to hear all the stuff that was just going on. You guys talked about that, I think, a year ago or two years ago, you know, you had a retrospective in Paris. And so you're building this body of work, and you're, you're now talking about, you know, the idea of celebrity. You're talking about the the idea of of undoing and, and undoing what the media is trying to do with us to, to you know, African-Americans and just people of color in general. And you're having all of this stuff, so you're having all these conversations, and then you're now a doctor. <laughs> you're Dr. Fahamu Peku, right? Which means you have to go back to school. Yeah, we, well, yeah I, well, I'm done now, I, well, <laughs> but right, I did go I, back, yeah. Why did I go back to school? You know, uh, I was really driven um, by a desire to enhance what I was already doing in my work by adding another dimension to it. You know, as I mentioned before, I discovered that different concepts bode well with, uh, with specific media. Um, and, you know, the, the, the academic piece, you know, is, was just, in my mind, another level and another dimension to that, right. um, especially as it pertained to um, issues of black masculinity. Uh, because, you know, as much as uh, I've been referred to uh, various scholars and writings and, and thinking about uh, black masculinity from academic, you know, texts. Eighty percent, maybe even ninety percent of those uh, texts and stuff like that about black masculinity were not written by men or by black people. Oh, really? Yeah, and yeah. that was like mind-boggling to me, you know. And so I felt like I had something that I could offer. Uh, to the conversation, um, and you know, and 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 also, you know, I thought that I would be able to, you know, get information and get access to information that would enhance what I was already attempting to do through the work. Right. And so it it just became another dimension for me to explore uh, in terms of the, the the themes and ideas and concepts in my work. Right. I mean, so now you're talking about, you know, adding another voice to a, a, a situation that you know you you realized doesn't is talking about the subject without the actual people that they're talking to and from right, right? so that right. so you you know you need to bring that other level the real level because that's who you are and all the aspects that you're dealing with to this conversation when people who are trying to be the the experts in it are not that right so i i everything that i seen that that, that you keep on doing is adding another level of of your nature to bringing to this conversation that you know us as a country deal with all the time but you're bringing your own various nuance and i really appreciate the fact that you know you're taking these risks you're allowing these things to flow and you're allowing them to to allow the process kind of guide you in a way that you're willing to not know what's going to happen it just seems to be that over 20 years 
you know, you've begun to figure out how to take these these opportunities really and 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 make them into something. And so as we start to kind of like end off where my conversation, I have some parting questions. I just really want to know what weakness do you think you have that you're that or had that you are beginning to turn into a strength? Hmm. I would say, uh, honestly, uh, self-confidence. Um, you know, we, we kind of joked around about this earlier, um, uh, you know, before the interview started. Uh, about how surprised you were to see the whole Fahamu Peku is a shit thing knowing me, you know? Right. Uh, uh, because, you know, prior to that, I, I mean, you know, you, you said that I was uh, a humble, you described me as a humble person, but I would describe myself as a very, very shy, introverted uh, person. Um, you know, once people got to know me, yeah, I can, you know, be silly and goofy and all that kind of stuff like that. But, you know, generally, like, I, I don't, talk to people that I don't know, uh, you know, I'm uncomfortable in situations of, especially if I'm not with a group of people that I know, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you know, so there's, you know, uh, I've, I've struggled like, you know, for most of my life with, with issues of like self-confidence. Um, so is, is, think, is the Fahamu Peku kind of response to that? Oh, most certainly. I mean, uh, you know, as much as it was a joke, it also forced me out, uh, out of my own shell in a way, uh, you know, like I said, uh, you know, if you're going to go around saying you shit, you got to kind of own up to that, you know? Uh, and, you know, even in the like performance work that I would do with that character early on, I was really kind of channeling my cousin, uh, uh, Jabril, you know, who's like a really gregarious outgoing, you know, everybody loves him kind of person. You know what I'm saying? In fact, it's so funny. Cause like, uh, uh, Jabril would often travel with me to exhibitions and stuff like that and pose as like my bodyguard. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because of his personality, even though we don't look alike, I mean, he's a big guy, like, you know, uh, bodybuilder kind of guy, you know what I mean? Uh, people would look at the paintings and think that he was the guy in the paintings, you know, uh, because of his personality, you know, and it was always funny to me because I was actually, you know, when I would do my performances and stuff, like I was channeling him, like my impression of what he would do, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, the whole Fahamu Pekus and shit thing was really like the complete opposite. It was like me doing the complete opposite of what felt natural and normal for me. Right. Well, that I mean, yeah. that's that's scary, and and you know, to have this persona and kind of allow the persona to be the one that goes through all these, right? It, it kind of you know, like any superhero puts a mask on, so you don't really know what's going on. It allows you exactly. to have allows you exactly. to have your own anonymity, really, because they know your face, but you know, you can play this bravado character and then you know, go home and have dinner with your kids, and they don't even know what's going on, right? Like, right. Told- yeah. I mean, you know, like literally, my mask was the sunglasses. Right. You know? Right. Uh, part of it was for me also like I you know you know I wear glasses like I don't have very good eyesight so when I put sunglasses on I can't really see what's going (laughs) on you know what I mean and so it it helped me to be less nervous because I couldn't see people it's like right right being on stage and the lights are like blinding enough you can't really see the people in the crowd and so you know you you, you 
able to get over any inhibitions that you might have. Right. That's a good technique. Yeah. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of young people. A lot of my students listen to my podcast. Thank goodness. Um, and <laughs> they're, they're going to be struggling with some of the things you dealt with coming up. You know, the idea of coming to New York and being this or the idea of, you know, how do I make it as a designer, as an artist, as a creative in general? What kind of insight, advice would you impart onto them? Yeah, man, I, I would say certainly um, uh, to, to persevere. Um, I think for a lot of artists um, and especially young artists and, and just, you know, really in our society in general, and maybe this goes back to the larger issue of like, you know, media images and celebrity images and stuff like that. We see these very, very polished, put together uh, images of, of our so-called icons and we begin to diminish our own value because it doesn't match this image of this icon, right? Um, and so a lot of young artists especially get frustrated when, you know, uh, you, you, you look on television and you see, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hank Willis Thomas or you see, you know, um, uh, Kehinde Wiley or you see, you know what I mean? Or you see Hebrew Brantley or something right. like that and you're like, oh man, they're selling their work for, you know, $100,000 or $50,000. I need to sell my work for $50,000. And then you can't sell your work for $50,000. And then you feel like you failed. And then you give up. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you, have to, you have to be tenacious. You have to persevere. And you have to pace yourself. Uh, um, I think that's the, the biggest uh, uh, thing that I think a lot of people uh, miss is the, this idea of, the process. And, and that's why I love that your show is about process because people want to skip the process. They want to go from beginning to, you know, uh, across the street instantaneously and, and, you know, skip all the steps in between. That's why I do this podcast is because, yeah. you know, you mentioned, you mentioned it before, how social media sees that, how they, you know, the images are always clean, you know, even all the work and designers, they never show all the, the, the months it's t taken to get to this refinement. They only show the, the right. final work. And so everybody goes, oh, I could do that. That's simple. And right. I'm like, you know how hard it is to make something look simple? Yeah. Do you know how many versions of that that they went through before they got to that one that you're looking at? Yeah. And so they don't they don't yeah. understand that. And they do one and they're like, well, it's mine simple. <laughs> it's a very different thing to think that, you know, you've gone through and made correct choices versus you've only done one option. And, right. you know, I appreciate the fact that, you you know. Um, go through that. And I mean, you can tell like, and that any good work, you can tell that there's a lot of process going through it. Yeah. Uh, I always tell people, um, you know, never sacrifice uh, the, the process for the end result because you can't have one without the other. You know, right. you're not going to have an end result if you didn't go through the process, you know, and if you don't go, and, you know, and if, if you, if you go through the process, you will definitely get to your end result. You know what I mean? Like you can't have one without the other. Right. And I, and I think, you know, the through line through, you know, our conversation is that you may have an idea of what's supposed to happen, but don't be so stuck on that, that you don't allow the mistakes and the little things that make it even more impactful happen. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, um, for, for, for me, there's no such thing as a mistake. You know, everything is a lesson. I just learned, you know, a hundred uh, ways not to do what it is that I'm trying to do. I didn't make a hundred mistakes. I learned a hundred ways not to do this. That's a, that, that's actually really, really good. I'm going to steal that. 
<laughs> but, but I'm gonna quote you. I'm gonna quote you. On well, that. no, I, 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 I don't think that's even mine. I think Ben Franklin said that or something. So like I that. will, I will steal that you stole it from <laughs> Ben Franklin. So one, my final question, um, after this, this you know, really, really fun interview, is what's the future hold for Doctor Peku? Man, I'm uh, really excited. There's so many things going on. Uh, but I should say, you know, because a lot of people ask me, now that you have your PhD, what are you going to do? Are you going to teach or, you know, da, 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 da. Uh, and I, I was always very adamant from the beginning uh, of my uh, uh, graduate program that I wasn't interested in being a professor or being a teacher in a conventional sense. I don't want to be stuck in a classroom, you know, grading papers. You know what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with uh, that, man. Nothing wrong with it, not at all. But that's not, you know, like I, I feel like there's lots of other ways to engage and other ways to teach, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm very much interested in what's called public scholarship uh, and using my work as a form of pu- public scholarship as a way to engage audiences. And I say that because one of the more challenging observations that I've had throughout my career um as I've done this work around issues of black identity and black masculinity is that, you know, oftentimes the audiences in the galleries don't look like the people that I'm thinking about when I'm making the work. Right. You know, Uh, and I'm often trying to figure out how can I get this work in front of the people who will benefit from it the most intimately, you know, not to say that other people can't appreciate it or that maybe that, that, that they don't benefit from it, but I'm, you know, very, very, conscious about the conversation that I'm having and who I'm trying to speak to with that conversation. Uh, And I find a similar challenge in the academic world as well. You know, like I said, I've read a number of books around black masculinity and black identity and, you know, uh, um, philosophies and theories and all this kind of stuff like that. A lot of it is in language that the average person wouldn't even begin to comprehend what's going on. Shit, half the time I couldn't understand what was going on, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I'm trying to figure out, like, now with, with, with the access that I have to various forms of, of scholarship, how do I make this scholarship accessible? You know, how do I make this art accessible? How do I make these, these teachings accessible to a broader audience? How do I, you know... Uh, how can I make sure that the work that I do has the most impact and does the greatest good? You know, um, that's where I am. That's what I'm looking forward to next, you know, trying to find ways of um, interjecting, you know, uh, my work and my ideas uh, into a broader cultural narrative in ways that the people who can benefit from it the most intimately have access to it. And I think that's wonderful. And I think the, the the last 20 years have gotten you to this place where you're able to to tackle this next this next challenge. You know, we're we're in a we're in a country that needs to be able to support the arts, support creativity, but also make sure that the people who your people are doing things for and the community that you're doing things for get to see it, understand it, and understand it in their own language, right? Yes, we, you, you know, for sure. because we like you said, academia tends to just put it over somebody's head and if you can't understand it, then it's really not for you. And that's not the case. Art is supposed to be something that's for the people. And I really, really appreciate the fact that this next chapter of your life after you, you know you've gotten your your doctorate is is going to be dedicated or at least you know more focused on on how to bring that to the forefront yes sir for sure yeah so you know fahamu thank you so much 
for being on the show. It was really, really a pleasure. Oh man, it's my the pleasure is all mine, man. Thank you so much, and I'm really excited for the the, the podcast and uh, looking forward to you know checking out future episodes. Thanks again. Take care in Atlanta. Likewise, brother. Thank you very much. This is Works in Process. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. I hope you learned a lot about a technique or a process that can apply to your own creative work. If you want a list to the links of the work, tools, or people mentioned during the interview, visit the podcast website at wip.show. Also, if you haven't done so, please subscribe to my Works in Process podcast on any podcast platform. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or any other place you get your podcast. And you can find behind-the-scenes pics on our Instagram channel by following us at works underscore in process. Thanks again. And until next time, follow your gut and trust in the process. Mm-hmm.